Welcome to the SQV Podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Lawrence. Today's episode sees the return of Charles Colon, and this is part one. There'll be a subsequent episode of a different topic from the same recording session forthcoming. But for this portion of the episode, Charles and I primarily focused on lighthearted, fun topics, stuff to distract us from all the horrid news that's constantly smacking us in the face every day. We talked about some of our favorite films, TV shows, and we got into the specifics of his stand-up comedy career, which maybe you're not aware of, but he had one. Sit back, relax, enjoy a lighthearted conversation, although also still an informative one, between me and Mr. Charles Colon. With everything seemingly being so terrible, as soon as you turn on your TV or your your internet or your computer, or look at your phone when you wake up in the morning, I thought today we might try to spend a little bit of time talking about some things that are fun. So, would you mind? I I wouldn't mind. I did. I I escaped myself. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I'm so curious about your time as a stand-up comic. Do you mind talking about about that? Telling us the story about that? Because no, I, no, I, no. I also I very briefly dabbled in in stand-up, and I spent some time as an actor and and in improv. And I'm fascinated anytime that I hear that someone also took a step into those into those arts. Well, the first thing you got to understand is that my parents were radio actors. That's how they met. Right. And uh, you know, we when we came out to California. And that was one of the reasons we came out to California, but it became obvious very quickly that the amount of time it would take for them to get anywhere in film, we'd be uh, dead of starvation. Uh, so that was the end of that. My dad fell back on his background in engineering. But when you're a theatrical family, you're a theatrical family. You can't escape it. Mm-hmm. Uh, if uh, my brother and I wanted to escape any kind of a punishment for something we'd done, well, my parents years ago were in a play by uh, Henry Gibson called uh, uh, Hedda Gabler. And my dad played Judge Brack, and my mother was Taya. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Hedda, Hedda Gabler, the main, the main, uh, main character. And Judge Brack was the sort of evil fellow who, whose attempt to, uh, to uh, force her to become his mistress leads to her suicide. Well, all we had to do was get them to whatever it was that they were annoyed with us about. All we had to do was get them talking about either Hedda or Judge Brack's motivations, and they were off in another world. <laughs> and you know, we we could flee unharmed. But <laughs> but it took after a few years they began to realize that uh, they were you know this was being done. So we had to be very careful about it. Anyway, uh, seriously though, you know most of the people we knew growing up, their parents were in the industry, and they themselves were in it. Um, that's just, you know, the nature of the game. It's geography. If, uh, if you were raised in a certain area in suburban Detroit, uh, most of your friends, uh, fathers would have been, uh, auto executives, you know, just, just the way it was. So nevertheless, um, I kind of fell into comedy the way I fell into everything else, uh, that's been any good in my life. Um. What happened was that I was uh, I had just uh, just quit a job which I wasn't pleased with, 
and didn't quite know what I was going to do. I tried various other things. But a friend of mine told me about an open mic night they were having at a place called Geo's on Sunset Boulevard. So I said, all right, I'll try it. And I did. And um, they had me back. They had me keep coming back night after night, after four or five nights. Gio himself, who's an Argentine fellow, uh, offered to pay me. Mm. And then I started performing at other clubs. I uh, was at the Billy Room, the comedy store at the start, which is where you always start in the comedy store. It took a long time to get to the main stage. Mm. And there's the improv and the last laugh factory, the last stop up in the valley. And um, private parties and so forth. So for the next few years, that's what I did. Um, and it was, eh, it wasn't bad. I enjoyed it. Uh, most of my jokes were very topical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like to make fun of types of people. I, you couldn't get away with it now, but I mean, I had various characters I do. My Unitarian minister and uh, <laughs> people like that. And of course, the uh, the uh, I also did an evangelical fellow, the, uh, the chaplain of Rodeo Drive. Uh, he, uh, well, it was the takeoff on Rex Humbard, the chaplain of Bourbon Street. And my, uh, my proof text was the sheik shall inherit the earth. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which, you know, and, and of course, the thing, the thing was, uh, you know, I'd, I'd reach back in various things. If um, one of the things I do would be to get, uh, get my audience singing Sons of God. And usually about half the audience would know what that was because they had Catholic educations and hated the song as much as I did. And the other half would stare and then laugh uncontrollably. You see, the, the trick the trick in comedy, there are three important things to remember. One is the later you go out in the evening, the better off for you because the drunk are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing to bear in mind is that you should never, and I mean but never, be used to fill in between musical acts. You will die. I know this. I was hired to do it once. Once was enough. And the third, and this is really the best part, for me, the best of it wasn't the applause, much as I enjoy applause. That wasn't it. It was when the jokes were working rapid fire, and people were laughing until you got to the point to where you could say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> this morning I put on my socks. <laughs> and they'd be roaring. I mean, I didn't quite go, go quite to that level. But uh, when you get your audience to that point, you know that whatever miseries they've got at home, whatever problems are in their lives, for those few minutes they're with you, it's gone. It just isn't there. You've taken away their misery for just a few minutes. And believe me, uh, you'll hear people saying, uh, you know, about medicine, for instance, oh, it's only temporary relief. Well, <laughs> temporary relief is better than no relief at all. Uh, few things, few things make you happier than being able to laugh at the absurdity of the life you have to live. Oh. And if, if your audience members can take away something with them that they'll smile at later, 
That's really good. Absolutely. I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just say that uh, I had a uh, very interesting experience back in 2012. A very elderly friend of mine was uh, in the hospital and I got to visit him the VA hospital in West, uh, West LA. And a, uh, a x-ray technician, an x-ray doctor came in. Unfortunately, they hadn't given him the morphine he was supposed to get. And so he was kind of writhing in pain, having a shattered pelvis. So I told the, uh, you know, I had a doctor in there earlier. But I said, you know, it's not his profile. You should be giving him morphine. And she goes, yes, that's right. We're going to give him the morphine now. Well, sure, absolutely. Well, like right now. Yes. <laughs> and then she walked off, and, and I'm, I, I, then in comes the, these two guys with this big X-ray machine. <laughs> and I, I said to the doctor, "What is it you want?" And he says, "I want to take his X-ray." And he's, I said, "He's you know, he's writhing in pain and shrieking." And I said, "Well, yeah. you know, you better get him the morphine that promised him if you think you're going to get him to lie still." Mm-hmm. So the doctor said, "All right, I'll go off and do that and take care of it." So he did, and in fact, he did take care of it. But all the while I'm talking to him, and I, you know, I turn, I look at the uh, the technician, and he looks at me, and this, it, it was a very pleasing moment for me, I can tell you. He says, oh, my God. And I said, uh, believe me, I'm not he. And he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> he says, I saw you at the improv 30 years ago. Wow. And I looked at him and I said, are you sure it wasn't my twin brother, Manfred? People say we look just alike. And he said, no, no, I know that voice. I know that face. I know the delivery. <laughs> so, yeah, but, uh, but so there you are. I mean, uh, I have no, uh, no great, uh, uh, no great tales. I only did about three years and then I made the capital mistake. Of getting a book published. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, that was the by accident. Really. Well, yeah, not initially, but within a couple of months, because I started getting invitations to lecture and uh, to write articles and so on and so forth. And believe you me, when I tell you the comedy is a full-time job. Mm-hmm. Personally, at least for me, it might be different for other people, but for me, it was a very rigorous schedule. I'd have to be up at the crack of noon every day. <laughs> Well, you got to get up sometime, don't you? <laughs> and then I'd go to my club, the Late Lamented Masters, and I'd sit down, think about what I was going to say the evening, make a few notes, come up with some jokes, and then prepare for a battle that evening. So you didn't really, you didn't write. Some comics, you know, they'll write the way that, almost the way that Flannery O'Connor would write, you know, two hours at the typewriter, you know, twice a day, and and but then some comics will just kind of do what it sounds like you're doing, which you have like an an overview or 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 theme or some characters you want to go with. You jot a few things down before you're set, and you're good to go. Maybe throw in some crowd yeah. work. That was more. That's exactly work. right. Mm-hmm. And the and the big thing I remember too is that if something isn't working, drop it. Right. See, the audience is everything, and where a lot of beginning uh, comics make a mistake, in my humble estimation. Uh, is that they think something's funny, so they should stick with it, even though no one else is laughing. Well, 
it's about them. It's not about you. Mm -hmm. So if that doesn't work, drop it right now. Maybe it'll work somewhere else. I and mean, it doesn't mean it stinks. It just isn't going to work for that audience at this moment. You know, sometimes you've got to try a routine two, three, four times to different audiences, uh, either before it either clicks or you realize it's garbage, you might as well not bother with it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's all dependent on your audience. And this is where you have to have a certain amount of humility in dealing with your audience, I, I, I firmly believe. They are the reason you exist. They're the ones, you're there to please them. I, uh, I remember after I'd gone on, oh gosh, I don't know, four or five, six times, I asked my dad, as I say, it was an actor and very experienced at these things. I said, Dad, uh, when is the stage fright ever going to go away? And he said, <laughs> if you're any good, never. Mm -hmm. And I said, but why? He said, son, the reason why you're getting stage fright is because you respect your audience. You don't think of it that way. You don't realize it, but that's what it is. You're worried about their opinion. If the time ever comes that you don't get stage fright, it means you have no respect for them. You have no business taking their money. Never forgot that. And honestly, to this day, uh, the lectures, even a show like this one, I always get stage fright beforehand. Always. Mm. And that, I guess, is a uh, that's a measure of respect for the audience, as I suppose the way Dad said. Um, it certainly, as I say, it certainly is important to remember that whether you're a comedian or you're an actor or a, uh, a pundit, a professional purveyor of your own opinions, um, there would be nothing without your audience, absolutely nothing. And you must never forget that. That doesn't mean you cater to them necessarily, especially in the matter of opinions. You always have to tell the truth. And that's the point. In telling them the truth, if you're a purveyor of opinions, you're showing your respect for them, not, not flattering them. Mm -hmm. But you can never forget that they are the reason you're around. Uh, the customer is not always king, but he certainly is the customer. He's not always right, but he is the one the one at the end of the day to open up an answer. Mutatis mutatis, that's why I, I always say that uh, architecture is inherently the least democratic of the arts. And the reason is that the architect does not really have to answer to the people who will live in his buildings or go to school in them or worship in them or uh, work in them or eat in them. All he has to do is convince big government, big education, big religion, big business, that he knows what he's doing. And then the, uh, the users of said building, <laughs> well, <laughs> if it's beautiful, lucky them. If it's not, they're stuck. <laughs> so you, you hear a lot that, um, and, and I've, I've experienced this and I've heard it from actor and comedian friends in the past. And, and I think it's, it's one of those cliches that's kind of true is that when you have that in you and you you participate in stand-up or theater acting, much in the same way that, you know, if you're a professional fighter, you carry that itch. 
you want to, you know, one more time in the ring or you want to keep getting up on the stage and it doesn't ever fully go away, even if you find fulfillment somewhere else. Do you think that you still have that and is maybe, for example, doing doing the show, the regular show with Mr. Frankini, a way that you kind of scratch that itch, so to speak? Oh, there's no doubt about it to me. None, none at all. Any, any more, any, it's the same with the lectures that I give at colleges. Uh, no, there's no doubt at all. I mean, the difference is the proportion. Uh, there was always a serious edge to my comedy. And there's always a comic edge to my quote-unquote serious work. Mm. And the reason for that is very, very simple. Uh, comedy, at the end of the day, is about exploring reality. And so it, it, it emphasizes the funny element. But it really wouldn't have any strength at all. It wouldn't be funny if it wasn't deeply rooted in reality. I'll tell you, you know, you asked about scratching the itch. Well, last uh, Christmas vacation when I was home, uh, a friend of mine was keen on my performing one last time. She's known me since I was a comedian. So she was keen on my, as it were, coming out for retirement for one, one night. And so I did a show with a bunch of other people. I mean, it was, I had like 15 minutes for them. A ton of young people. Well, a lot of comedy is born from pain. No doubt about it. And if that's all there is to it, it just isn't funny. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's the pain, but there's also, you, you've got to have some kind of realization that, that there's an order somewhere uh, against which the insanity you're dealing kind of uh, is kind of a, uh, a, a violation of. All right. Well. So I'm sitting backstage with all of these young comedians. I'm listening to them and talking to them. What a despairing bunch of people. Yep. And when it was over, I mean, mind you, in my uh, so-called heyday in the early 80s, uh, we had a lot of that, but it wasn't all there was, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I came away from that experience very depressed. And I, I would not want to be a comedian today if you paid me. I mean, not not in the way I was, not where and when I was. If you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, it was it was very very depressing. And uh, comedy should not the comedian should not look at comedy as therapy. You know, it's not an encounter session with the audience as the other members of the group. <laughs> that's that's really not it i mean you may be good at it you you but it's more performance on and i i tell you i include me out you know yeah a lot of comics feel that way they feel like and you can tell in their, in their by the nature of their work especially now it's they're unloading their misery and they want you to laugh at it and it's 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 for their edification, and, and it's cathartic for them. They don't really they don't really care so much about the audience's experience, especially what they might take away from. It. No, and that's and that's wrong, because as I say, mm -hmm. you're there for the audience. They're not there for you. You know that's what you want. You'll get to shrink, or better yet, find a confessor. Mm -hmm. But for heaven's sake, don't unload on an audience 
your problems. I mean, your difficulties, the way, you, whatever you've been through life will shape your point of view, your sense of the absurd. And what you have to do is get that sense of the absurd across to them so that they can see what's silly too. They can laugh at it and they can feel better. That's, uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I don't want to say it's not rocket science because it is a bit difficult, frankly. Yeah. But it, 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 to be any good, it's got to be audience oriented. I wanted to get your thoughts on, on first of all, just some of your favorite films, why they're your favorite films. And then after that, what are some films maybe that you think it's, it's I don't want to use the word important, but a good idea for Catholics to see, either just for the sake of their own imagination or edification or to draw them out of all the miserable stuff that's going on every day. And that's something that's going to mire them further down into it. So can we start with some of your what are your, some of your favorite films and why why they are so? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I'll just warn you before I do, however, that uh, how do I put this? You won't find a single explicitly religious film among them. Okay. I would say that my favorite film of all time is quite probably. A very obscure thing that came out in 1969 called They Might Be Giants. Oh, okay. Uh, sorry, George C. Scott and Joy Woodwork. Uh, George C. Scott is a just a judge, a wealthy judge who goes crazy after his wife dies and believes he's Sherlock Holmes. Uh, his brother is in debt to the mob and wants to get custody of his fortune. The mob want to knock him off so the brother will inherit. So he does have real enemies, but he's believed he's pursuing uh, Professor Moriarty. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the doctor who is assigned to uh, examine him so he can be committed to the insane asylum, uh, Joanne Woodward, is uh, Dr. Watson. And as you can imagine, she gets caught up in his adventures, but at the end, we're not quite sure what's real and what isn't. Mm -hmm. It's a tremendous film, and I recommend it highly. But get the extended version. Uh, there's a key scene set in a supermarket that's missing from the cut version. Oh, really? Both are online. Yeah. So both are online, so go for the longer version. Because the scene of the supermarket is very, very important. Now I, I don't uh, know which version I've seen now, so I'm going to have to, because it's been a long time, I'm going to have to go back. Yeah, well, go back and see it. If there's no... Uh, if there's no great fight in the supermarket toward the very end, then you need to go see the longer one because it puts it in perspective. Although without that scene, I don't know why they cut it. It just, they do. Without that scene, the whole procession of, uh, of his ad hoc army doesn't make any sense. Okay. Not so uh, I'm not, you see, you notice how I'm skillfully not putting in spoilers. Yes, I did notice that. That's appreciated. Uh, that, it's on purpose. Uh, another uh, another film I'm very very fond of is The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. Uh, Terry Gilliam came out in 1989, 1990. I love that movie. It's a tremendous film. I love that movie. Uh, I, I think again, I don't want to give spoilers, but there's a wonderful scene, and you'll remember this, I'm sure, where uh, he. Uh, 
the Baron ties a, uh, a length of rope around the, the end of the crescent moon. That's right. And, and they're climbing down, and he says, this is precisely the sort of thing that no one ever believes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You can, you can understand his frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, another film that I'm very fond of, simply because I knew a number of the real people that, whose characters are in the film, uh, is uh, Tim... Uh, uh, gosh, his name is Just Escape. You know, he did Sleepy Hollow, Sweeney Todd, uh, the before. What's that? Johnny Depp? No, 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 the, the maker of the films. Oh, Tim Burton. Thank you, Tim Burton. My mind is going. I mentioned him earlier today. And poof, yeah. it's gone. All right. So, uh, but my favorite Tim Burton film, well, all right. I, I love Sleepy Hollow as well. But uh, his film, Ed Wood. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. A film I'm very, very fond of. Uh, not least because we knew Ed Wood. Uh, we knew Criswell. He was our landlord. Wow. Uh, yeah, it was the Hollywood boyhood. So, the uh, the funny thing about it, again, I'm not going to get relieved, uh, uh, not any spoilers, except to say that it's a, a biopic of the best portion, not the CD later years, but the best portion of the life of uh, Hollywood's worst filmmaker, uh, the late, great Edward D. Wood Jr., who uh, left me with a, fra- a phrase I will never forget, which is, life is a strange place in which to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he proved it, I can assure you. However, uh, one of the things about that film uh, that really caught me was how well he reprodu- uh, Tim Burton reproduced the uh, atmosphere of 50s Hollywood. So much so that there's uh, up to one, one... Have you seen the film? Oh, sure. Yeah. All right. Well, you remember uh, uh, the scene where they're having a party in the meat locker? Mm-hmm. Just before that scene came on, I was telling the fellow who was with me and watching it, I said, you know, they've got everything in this bloody movie but Corla Panda. No sooner were the words out of my mouth <laughs> than it switches to the uh, to the meat locker and there's Corla Panda knocking away on the keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, okay, that's it. That's it. I mean, that kind of attention to detail is a hallmark of a Tim Burton film. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so I'd, rec- I'd recommend that. I, you can stay away from Dark Shadows, but uh, I, do like, uh, I do like Sleepy Hollow very much. And um, uh, Martin, Landau, Martin Landau's performance as Lugosi in Ed Wood is spot oh, on. I mean, amazing, amazing. I'm a big Lugosi fan, and that was a, just an incredible. It's worth watching just for that alone. It's so good. Well, it's, it's, it's true, and it gives, it gives you a real feeling for uh, Lugosi, yeah. which, uh, since you are a Lugosi fan, I'll tell you a funny story that the late Forey Ackerman told me. Oh, great. Um, the, uh, well, I asked him, because, you know, uh, I should premise my remarks, Forrest Ackerman was sort of the father of science fiction, horror, fantasy fandom. Mm-hmm. And he produced a magazine for many years called Famous Monsters of Filmland, which I grew up reading. Uh, and I, I didn't know him until toward the end of his life. 
Now, I can't say I know him well. It's not like we were buds or anything. But I, I visited what was called the Acker Mansion several times. Now, what he had done in his house, he had a huge collection of movie memorabilia from all the classic horror, science fiction, and fantasy films. Uh, you know, he had one of Dracula's capes and things like that. It's an amazing collection. Wow. So I asked him, surrounded by all this stuff as he was, and knowing Lugosi as he did, because he knew uh, Lugosi very well, mm. I asked him, uh, did you ever hear of anything really strange in Lugosi's life? He said, well, one thing that the uh, Tim Burton movie got wrong was that Lugosi's funeral was actually well attended. There were quite a few people there. Mm -hmm. There wasn't quite the pathetic thing that you saw. But the uh, driver of the hearse with uh, Lugosi's coffin in it uh, was supposed to turn one way to go up to the cemetery. Suddenly, uh, he felt the control uh, pulled out of his hands, as it were. And the hearse went down Hollywood Boulevard, <laughs> down Lugosi's uh, favorite walk. And, he, and the, the driver couldn't control it. And the guy sitting next to him was just, you know, saw this going on. Uh, finally, when they came to the end of the boulevard, he was able to regain control and then turn around and go back up. But that's why they were a little late. Uh, and he got the story from the two of them as they got out of the hearse looking very, very confused. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a... Uh, that's a, uh, you, you, you could uh, replay this particular section for your Halloween uh, segment. But, uh, so that's a little, little Lugosi tale for you. At any rate, uh, but there are a couple of others of that roughly the same era, in the late 80s, early 90s, I would point to. Mm -hmm. L.A. Confidential is a film I'm very fond of, despite the language. And I, I have to, I have to uh, say that one of the, horrors of my life, and I'm sure you've felt this yourself if you like movies, you've so trained yourself not to notice either the nudity or the language. Mm. You focus on the film, on the plot, on the, on the characters, all this, and you, you, that's what you love. And then you show it to someone who you think will, will enjoy. It's only when the credits start rolling on the TV screen that you begin to remember, oh my God, there's this, that, or the other in it. Yeah. And meanwhile, the person sitting next to you, you know, who's inevitably your mother-in-law to somebody. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, the like, why did you show me this thing? You know, yeah. like, oh. Because it's 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 hard for them to realize how adept you become at self-censorship. Mm -hmm. You know, and you for, to the degree that you forget about it until you show the person the thing. So that's why I mentioned this in regard to L.A. Confidential, which is a is a brilliant film but the language is a bit raw in places yeah. the funny thing is i've seen it also on television where the language has been altered in a way that actually made it far more 50s feeling right that makes sense yeah yeah it it and, and that i it's one of the problems making period films today is that people really are so into what we are now they have they get the costuming right, they'll get the cars right, they'll get the atmosphere, they'll get everything, but they just can't seem to get the people of the dialogue correct. Mm -hmm. At any rate, 
another film that I liked very much from that period was The Rocketeer. Oh, yeah. That's like one of my wife's favorite movies. It's one of mine, too. Yeah. Uh, just a tremendous picture. I really, really, uh, really, really enjoyed it. And going backwards in time a little bit, um, of course, there were, there were a lot of films uh, I enjoyed growing up. You know, The Sword of the Stone is the first movie I ever remember seeing uh, when it came out. That was in 1963. Mm. So it must have been, you guessed it, three. Uh, and in fact, the only, uh, the only thing I remembered that, I really, that really came away with me, and it stuck in my head forever, with the opening sequences where they're singing a ballad and the pages on a, on a book are turning. Mm. Uh, I, I saw it again 10 years later when it was re-released. I really enjoyed it. But the only thing I remembered were those, was the song and the book turning. So it shows you what sticks in a three-year-old's head and what doesn't. Mm. But <laughs> at any rate, I could go on and on, but I'll just say that as far as old films go, uh, and touching on the Grossi again, I was very fond of Dracula. Yeah, me too. Uh, I'm very, very fond of a movie called Grand Hotel. Okay, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say also uh, Dinner at Eight. And it's wonderful film. And lastly, but not leastly, and mind you, there are a lot of other films I love, but these will have to do. I don't want to take up all your time, and I could. Uh, would have to be without a doubt on borrowed time. That's familiar. Yeah, it's Lionel Barrymore plays an old man who. Uh, okay, right. He figures out how to trap death in a tree. Mm -hmm. And then he finds out the real value of, of death. Where the woodbine twineth. So there you have a, uh, there you have an introduction to my favorite films. Very good. What about movies that have more of an just an underlying theme of not necessarily Catholicism, but but the gospel message of Christianity? So I I, I think of course of a lot of Frank Capra's movies or or some of the work of Robert Bresson, Mouchette, and Die of Your Country Priest. Well, Die of Your Country Priest is for obvious reasons more explicit. But do you find that 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 tends to work better. And do you, are there any of those type of films that, that you enjoy or would, or would recommend? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, uh, think of Keys of the Kingdom with Gregory Peck, mm. uh, where he, he plays a, uh, he plays a, uh, a missionary in China. And you see a good chunk of modern Chinese history through his eyes. Uh, there, there, there are a number, a number of others where the faith is there sort of obliquely mm -hmm. on the waterfront, for instance. Right. Uh, the, uh, and there, the Cardinal, actually, uh, which is, is very explicit, uh, explicitly Catholic. And it's got some failures to it, I can tell you. And, and that's always, the, the problem is a lot of these films that with priest characters, uh, they don't quite get it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you look at Capra, because the the uh, 
the faith is sort of absorbed into the woodwork. It's a little bit like Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and here I'm speaking specifically of the books. Uh, if you know what you're looking at, the faith is all over the books. Yes. R- really, what Lord of the Rings is, I mean, mind you, there's a lot of other stuff beyond what I'm going to say, but what is at the core of it and what I believe gives it its power is that it's really a meditation on the workings of grace and free will. Mm-hmm. And you have the feeling. I'm sorry? I said absolutely. Absolutely it is. Yeah, and that is what gives it its power because you feel you feel that this is the way life really works. I mean, the, the, there are a couple of classic moments uh, in the books where uh, he almost comes up and says it. So, for instance, the thing where uh, uh, Gandalf is trying to comfort Frodo and he says, well, remember that Bilbo was meant to find the ring. Mm-hmm. And you were meant to have it, and to, to, to get it, and not by its maker. Mm-hmm. Now, that is an obvious reference to the divine will. Mm-hmm. But it's so quickly and swiftly done. Now, that was translated not too badly into the film. But where uh, one scene that really, I think it was used in The Hobbit. I may be wrong. Of course, The Hobbit was kind of a, you know, cramming one film into three. Yeah. But uh, one thing they totally blew in that was a wonderful scene in the uh, appendices of Lord of the Rings, which is where Gandalf is holding forth on what would have happened had uh, Smog not been slain by the dwarves in, in the Hobbit. Basically, he goes, he, he uh, talks about how he had run into Thor and Oakenshield one night at the end, where he literally just ran into him. And Thorin gives him this big deal about we're going to go to the Lonely Mountain, we're going to uh, uh, kill the dragon, and blah, blah, blah. And Gandalf's first thought was, well, you're going to need a hobbit as a burglar if you're going to do anything like that. (laughs) And so he goes off to the Shire to find one, and he he runs into Bilbo. Well, uh, so he's telling the story. He says, imagine what would have happened had that quest failed. And he goes to this long list of, of calamities that would have occurred, ending with uh, Dragonfire and Lorien, and perhaps no Queen and Gondor. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but none of that happened, because I ran into Thorin Oakenshield one night at the Inn and Brady. A chance meeting, as we say in Middle Earth. Well, you read the book, and it's obvious what he's getting at. It wasn't a chance meeting, of course. Mm-hmm. It was divine well uh but in the uh in the movie version this is turned into gandalf uh you know petting himself on the head for uh having so uh knowingly arranged everything yeah they botched that they really botched it uh i mean it's it's in a lot of ways of course you know the, the problem with lord of the rings the movie is that it will never be the movie in your head mm-hmm. so if you love the books, you'll always find something to snip at with the film. But if you look at the film as a work of art on its own, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's definitely. I mean, especially if you if you have the patience to sit through the extended editions, it's it's. Well, really that's good. that's the trick. 
that's the tree. Otherwise, that is the sorry thing. But here's the thing. It succeeds as much as the Hobbit fails, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, uh, a worse train wreck than those three films, I can't imagine. You know, the whole, the whole elven dwarf mixed marriage love thing, my golly. Yeah, that was, that was painful. I, 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 I didn't enjoy those at all. Awkward love scenes and the people who hate them. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's so true. And, and I, I try to drill this into people's heads a lot. It, it's so true what you say about the Lord of the Rings in particular. If, if you know what you're looking for, it's there. But if you don't, you're still getting the power. And 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 in the yeah. same way that I think I think M Night Shyamalan's best movie is not The Sixth Sense. I think it's Signs because to me that's yes. still clearly a movie about divine providence. That yes, people just absolutely. don't they don't get it though. It it is such a good film, uh, Signs. Uh, it's very well. It's very self-contained. Very. Uh, it works on so many levels. And yeah, it's an extremely good film. You know, and another film that's uh, very good that way, and I'm only thinking of it because uh, uh, I don't know why I'm thinking of it, except that uh, Caviezel was in it. And of course, he worked with, uh, uh, he worked with uh, uh, Mel Gibson. So that's why. But it was a, a movie called... Uh, Frequency. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, in a sense, in signs, you've got a, uh, a widowed father and Episcopal priest. I understand, I could be wrong, but I understand that originally he was supposed to be a Byzantine Catholic priest, which mm. makes a lot more sense in, in rural Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But nobody would, uh, would understand that outside rural Pennsylvania. So they made him an Episcopal priest. But of course, an Episcopal priest living in the in the boondocks doesn't make any sense either. So anyway, <laughs> never mind. Nope. Never mind. He had to be a married priest. All right, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Just live with it. But it, it certainly dealt very much with uh, it very, dealt very very much with uh, fatherhood and the ongoing responsibility there too. Mm -hmm. uh, Frequency, again, an amazing film. And that rare, rare, rare commodity, a male weepy. Mm. Mm -hmm. you, don't, you don't come across those very often. No. Uh, and in fact, uh, I mean, certainly not as effectively done as this was. And of course, the, the high point of the thing is when the... Uh, the fellow is saved by his father. Now, this is a spoiler, but it's, I think it's permissible. Maybe not. We'll see. But suffice to say, the father is able to achieve the role he was, in a sense, destined to do because of the son's ongoing efforts. And again, uh, you know, it, it, it these are the kinds of films that give hope, really, for the industry. Uh, because it's still possible to make movies that are important, that speak to the human condition. Uh, I, would, I would recommend, if it's escapist fare you're after, sure. sheer flight from reality. 
Yes. Uh, rather than film, I want to recommend, believe it or not, some ancient TV shows. Okay. I've been using them a lot these past few months, and they've been very helpful. Uh, one thing I discovered, which I had heard of for years and years, but never actually sat down to watch, and now you can't, thanks to uh, Daily Motion, is a, uh, an old uh, 1968 to 1977 uh, British comedy series called Dad's Army. Hmm. And it's about the, uh, the uh, uh, home guard during World War II. Very, very funny stuff, especially... You had anything to do with the military at all, especially with the National Guard or something like that. You, know, you get a kick out of it. It's very funny and uh, very touching, also in a lot of ways. I would recommend. Uh, also, I'd recommend uh, Bewitched, uh, The Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, which followed the old, uh, the old what was pre All of the Family, uh, unending. Uh, formula for sitcoms. But this also had things like The Adams Family and so on. Mm -hmm. And that sitcom formula was this. Gilligan's Island is another example. Uh, either ordinary people in bizarre circumstances or bizarre people in ordinary circumstances. Mm -hmm. that's, that's what sitcoms were. Till all of the family came along and made everything relevant. Well, that's nice. <laughs> but you know, relevance I've had enough of. You know, I, I in those days you watched television to be entertained, not to be preached to, not to be improved, not to be updated, to be entertained and amused. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I have to say, and I know a lot of people will be upset with me for saying it, entertainment and amusement are not the greatest and highest effect. But they're not bad. No. Nope. And they have a place. And you know, I've been watching a lot of the old Vincent Price horror films. Oh, the yeah, those are great. Yeah, yeah. And Vincent Price, you know, I, I don't know if you knew that he was a copper. I did know that. Yeah, I heard that. Mm -hmm. Was well, is a strange story. Um, he was married three times. Uh, the obligatory first marriage didn't last long. Right. The uh, second marriage was his longest uh, to a lady with whom he shared a lot in common, including a taste of gourmet food. They wrote a, a cookbook together, an artwork, and they donated a lot of artwork to a local college. Uh, but they broke up. And after they broke up, he uh, met an Australian actress who was a Catholic. And she, of course, wouldn't marry him unless he got an annulment, which she was able to do. Uh, she was kind of a character. I can't think of her name right now. You'll notice my my memory for names is really fried right now. But she was an Australian lady and was both very devout and had something of a foul mouth, which you don't generally expect together, but I guess in Australia they, they have them. But at any rate, the story is <laughs> told about her that uh, at one point uh, she was in London and doing a play on the West End and she just got the confession of the prompted oratory. So she comes out of the oratory, and another friend of her comes up and sees her, and is filled with this scandalous bit of gossip, he starts telling her. And, he, and she looks at it and says, 
you cut it out with that crap. Can't you see I'm in an effing state of grace? <laughs> Which I, <laughs> I <laughs> so I mean she had a very she had a very uh, uh, matter of fact Catholicism, shall we say? Well, mm -hmm. so as it happened, uh, Price became rather interested in her religion, and after they got married. And he wanted to surprise her with his conversion. So every Wednesday night, he would sneak off to St. Victor's in uh, West Hollywood. It's a church I know well, uh, then pastored by the redoubtable Monsignor Parnassus, uh, and uh, get instruction of the faith. And he was always coming up with different uh, excuses as to why he was doing this. Mm. Well, eventually she became suspicious. And she was sure he was seeing another woman or something was going on. So she demanded he tell her what was happening. And he realized, because this was the kind of woman she was, he realized that if he didn't tell her what was going on, she would leave him then and there. Mm. Full stop. So he told her. And after she stopped laughing, she said, well, I'm sorry I spoiled the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> But so he, he died a Catholic, and uh, you know that's he's uh, a tremendous actor. If it's all right, as I say, a great foodie and a great uh, a great uh, lover of uh, of the arts. So you know, what are you gonna do? I love um, I love a lot of his movies, but for some reason, the one that I keep coming back to is is the Last Man on Earth. Oh I gosh, think, yeah. yeah. Oh. I, Best adaptation of I Am Legend. I mean, Omega Man is fine, but I think The Last Man on Earth is just tremendous. Well, you know, it, it's, I'll say something about Omega Man in a minute, but yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and I think he, he was perfect for the part. He really, you know, so many of the roles he played, he was just Vincent Price. Yeah. You know, a little bit like Andrew Lansbury has become. Mm -hmm. uh, but in that one, he really, really stretched himself. He really, really did. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a very good film. The Omega Man, uh, uh, the reason why I'm, I'm gigging a little bit over it is because uh, the Criswell House, where we lived when we first came to uh, Hollywood, the house of the great prophet, <clears throat> it's, uh, since the time of our story, it's become a uh, uh, part of a college now. Mm. But, at one point, it was up for sale. It was an apartment house. You know, there were four houses, four apartments in it. Uh, and we lived in one of them. But I suggested to my brother, who's something of a real estate uh, fellow, I said, uh, you know what you should do is sell your other properties in the valley, buy this, and move the family in. And he said, what, in this neighborhood? And I said, oh, it's simple. You just take it out like the Omega Man. It would be perfect. <laughs> And he said, "We well, yeah, you're right. We've got the gutted placements here and here. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's, you know, speaking of um, Lugosi and, and Vincent Price, it strikes me that I have a real affinity for a lot of the classic horror movies. And I'm just appalled at what horror has become. And I don't know how that happened, but it's it's nothing more than gore and exploitation and 
and just dismal kind of stories where, you know, the quote unquote good guys, if there are any, never win. And, and I contrast that with something like one of my favorite movies really maybe ever is, is Bride of Frankenstein. Sure. And, and I don't know where that, that kind of left turn happened. I, I guess it happened somewhere along the way that, that it happened for everything else. But it seems like nothing that you watch now that's made now for the most part ever leaves you feeling good. It leaves that's you feeling true. miserable. That's quite true. I mean, uh, and again, you're quite right in that it was symptomatic of what happened in everything. Uh, the, the, the happy ending of Dracula, uh, which incidentally in the book, uh, even Dracula himself dying looks relieved to have been put out of his misery. <laughs> Uh, which of course you couldn't really get across in the film, but the 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 idea of the triumph of good over evil first began to be well the evil is misunderstood you know the vampires aren't really evil they're well a good example of this is that really stupid Disney film Maleficent. Mm -hmm. I mean. You know, the whole thing was one of the worst pieces of garbage I've seen in a very long time. Now, to be fair, and I'm nothing if not fair, <laughs> uh, I was kind of, um, I enjoyed the, uh, uh, the sequel to Mary Poppins. And also the one uh, directed by, oh gosh, what's his name? The Northern Irishman, who was in Henry V, is a very fine director. And that, and there's a good film, the new Henry V. Well, it's not new now, but 1991 Henry V. Uh, Kenneth Branagh. Oh right, okay, yeah. And he did this sort of sequel to Winnie the Pooh, which I actually liked very much. I think my uh, wife watched that. Is that the one with you and McGregor in it? That's the one. Yeah. Yeah, my wife saw that. She she enjoyed that. Yeah, that was that was rather a good film. But if you really want to jump out a window, uh, I would suggest either The Walking Dead and Fear the Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and Game of Thrones. Oh, forget it. I mean, let's let's forget the uh, let's forget the uh, quasi pornographic aspect of Game of, Game of Thrones. Let's put that aside for the moment. The utter pointlessness, the the moral nihilism of the thing is utterly horrendous. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, you know, the problem is all this stuff will be defended by the idea that happy endings don't really happen and this is real life. Well, no. No, actually, it's not real life. That's why Lord of the Rings, as we said earlier, is so powerful. And mm -hmm. that's why stuff, people watch it, people pay for it, but it won't be remembered for 50 years. Mm -hmm. It won't. No. It, it can't grasp you unless, you know, unless you've got the, the, uh, there should be a kind of a desire to, to jump out a window. It's it's really not going to do you much good. And the funny thing is, uh, even Lovecraft, whose atmosphere, whose uh, universe was pointless and so on, nevertheless, because he is such a master of atmosphere, mm -hmm. and because in that in that atmosphere there are elements of benevolence as it were. 
And usually the good guys, such as they are, win in the immediate, even though you're, you're, you're given the feeling that their victory is temporary. There is good and bad, there is justice, even in Lovecraft's work. But you don't see it in The Walking Dead, you don't see it in Game of Thrones. Now, somewhere, somewhere along the line, and again, we could speculate about when and, and why, but those, those classic values, I will say, or, or, or that dichotomy of good and evil kind of went out the window in favor of, as, as you put it, like this, this supposed desire to be more realistic. But, but those things, they don't endure. Because if you look at even something else I wanted to talk to you a little bit about today, classic ancient folklore and folktales, there's always evil and good. And, and nine times out of ten, in the end, the good wins out. Absolutely. I mean, forget the forget one's own religious feelings. Isn't there something intensely satisfying about seeing a vampire withdraw from a crucifix? Mm -hmm. Knowing that this mighty being, which could literally rip you apart, is afraid of that one little symbol. Mm -hmm. And again, we'll set aside our religion for the moment. Uh, I only say for the moment. I never set aside for long. Ha ha ha. But <laughs> the idea of something so powerful reduced to weakness by something so small. Mm -hmm. it's, it's which gives complete protection against the thing. It's it's marvelous. Uh, one of the uh, one of the great strengths of dark shadows, which you may or may not have heard of, but well, sure. I, I grew up with it. <laughs> We come running home from school every day to make sure we got, got there by four o'clock. <laughs> but <clears throat> they always used the uh, they always used the traditional tropes because they work. You know, the folklore works because again, folklore owes its origins to three things: religion, the world perceived around us and people's own interior attitudes. Now, whether the, their perceptions are accurate or not, whether there are fairies and werewolves and so forth, that's a whole other issue. But nevertheless, they perceive them to be that. What the meaning behind this perception was, was given them by their religion. But it had, it was, all of it was very, it answered something needed in the human psyche. Yes. Mm -hmm. We need to tell stories. And I know that you'll hear people like uh, Father, uh, oh gosh, not Avery Dulles, the guy from Chicago, the sociologist, he's dead. Uh, not one of my favorite people. I can't think of his name either. You'd remember if we, if we were doing this interview 30 years ago. Anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's. Uh, you'll find out what it's like one day. Trust me. But I can't you, remember stuff now. Well, then you're you're being well trained for a career. <laughs> Forget <laughs> us. But at any rate, uh, despite the fact that he made the same statement, he wasn't wrong. We uh, we tell stories, and we love stories, and we should love stories because uh, really that was how God spoke to us when He was here on Earth. You know, there's a reason why our Lord told us parables. Uh, 
But also, the important thing to bear in mind is that just because something is a parable doesn't necessarily mean that it isn't also factually true. That was the very beginning of, uh, of scripture scholarship. And it's important to remember when we're looking at, at folklore, that while it may not be exactly true in all elements, it can't be entirely false either, or it would have no, there'd be no strength to it. There would have no hold on it. Now, my view. How did you become interested in, in, in folklore initially? And, and do you have particular regions that you gravitate towards that you find more interesting? Or do you have just kind of an overarching interest in it as, as a kind of cultural touchstone? Well, uh, to start, uh, I had two folkloric influences on me from my very early childhood. Uh, my dad and his uh, male relatives primarily, they were the great storytellers, uh, introduced me from as far back as I can remember to the uh, great figures of French-Canadian folklore. Uh, the Nougarou was our werewolf, the Lupin, uh, which is uh, like a fairy. The Fetiche, which is magic, black magic really. Um, the Tetier, who are these wise women and men who, you know, cure ringworm by spitting on it and things like that. Uh, the Chascalerie, which is sort of the the voyageurs flying Dutchman, in a sense. You can okay. imagine a canoe that's condemned to ply the rivers forever. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, Chasse Sauvage, the wild hunt, that kind of yeah. stuff. Now, the wild so, hunt is, is interesting because it's it's multicultural, isn't it? it it's well, well, most see most, and this I'm going to answer your second question in a moment, but keep that. Don't if I don't get to it, make sure I answer it. Okay. <laughs> uh, the second thing, of course, was that uh, my first few years of life were in the fabulous Hudson River Valley, uh, land of Washington Irving and uh, Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle, mm. and, uh, mm. all that sort of stuff. And my father had a great love of that kind of lore, although he was not uh, a native of the Hudson, uh, Hudson River, uh, but he sure enjoyed living there. And, you know, taking us around to various colonial cemeteries and battle sites and so forth, and Sleepy Hollow itself. Uh, these things, they, they too impress themselves on my memory. Uh, as far as my interest in folklore, I'm interested in the folklore of Christian countries. Okay. Not just in Europe, but everywhere. You know, the Goanese culture in India, which is very thoroughly Catholic, but very definitely Indian. And yet, you see the same motifs over and over and over again, which brings me back to the wild hunt. Uh, the fact is that you do see these motifs over and over and over again, which lead one to suspect one of three things. Either there is some objective reality to them, or they are in some sense imprinted or hardwired out of the human brain, or both, some combination. Uh, beyond that, of course, I, I really couldn't couldn't go because it's not an area where you can do anything but speculate about. Uh, 
I don't have ever read Tolkien's on fairy stories, but uh, he certainly inclined to the view that there must be something there. But of course, he also felt that in his composition of Lord of the Rings, he had touched on something else, something beyond him. And I would not be surprised. I mean, as a writer myself, I often don't quite know where inspirations come from. Mm-hmm. I, um, you know, I've got a new book coming out this month, and it's a uh, auto, not autobiography, a biography of uh, Blessed uh, Emperor Karl of Austria, the last Austro-Hungarian emperor, Blessed. Um, but as I was finishing the book, and again, you wouldn't think this would happen to a history writer, but it does. As I was finishing the book, literally the very last paragraph, I had been enumerating all the different sorts of people who could look to Carl as a sort of patron. You know, soldiers, rulers, husbands, fathers, and illuminating why he was a good patron for each of them. Well, and this is all very typical stuff. A lot of other people have written about it. But then something hit me that I don't think anyone else has written about, but it hit me very hard. And that was, he's also a great patron for people from either broken homes or bad families. Mm. Because his parents were very badly suited for each other. And after his father got syphilis, they they lived apart. But he stayed on very good terms with both of them. And he got the best elements out of each of them. From his father, he got his easy manner and humor and common touch and charm and all that stuff, but not the promiscuity. And from his mother, he got this very deep, 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 deep religiosity, but not the durance, not the rigidity. And that also answered, and I said as much as I was scribbling, it all hit me at once. It also explains the question historians have had, which was how, when his great uncle, the emperor, and his uh, uncle, Franz Ferdinand, who, were, uh, who was the heir, but whose children did not inherit because it was made to marry morganatically, there was a good deal of uh, both political and personal uh, problems between the emperor and Franz Ferdinand. But yeah. Karl was able to deal with both of them on very good terms even though he agreed politically with Franz Ferdinand, he was able to see his great uncle's point of view as to why he felt the way he did about things. But he got on very well with both of them. And then it hit me that the reason why this was, and people wondered why, was because he had the experience with his parents. That's why. He knew how to deal with people like that who were at the same time close to him. And so the secret to how he was able to deal with both the emperor and Prince Ferdinand was actually actually a lot simpler than you might think. He loved them. <laughs> it's really, mm-hmm. really as simple as that. He loved them. Mm-hmm. And you know, so many other, uh, when that hit me, so many things I'd read about his dealings with both of them suddenly clicked. And all the questions that so many other authors have had about his able, being able to do that seemed a little funny to me, you know. Mm-hmm. The answer so obvious in that moment. But I tell you, it came to me. It, all of what I've told you came to me in a flash. And I couldn't tell you how or why. And it did so just as I was about to close the book out. Wow. But uh, I, I think you would be very hard put to find any author 
who doesn't have a similar story to tell about something. That's very interesting. It's almost like, um, I guess if you didn't believe in, in Providence or the divine will, you might attribute it to some kind of collective unconscious. Possibly. It could be collective unconscious. It could just be the, the, uh, correlation of uh, the correlation of different elements are already in your head that you suddenly pull together for some reason. I mean, you know, people argue to the end of time about the whys and wherefores of these things, but we know they happen. Mm -hmm. uh, we know when, when uh, Tolkien felt that in a sense he had a, uh, a window into a pre-existing world. Um, he certainly meant it. And a lot of fiction writers have told him the same thing. And certainly, when a book of that sort is well done, uh, you do come away from it feeling that if this sort of thing could happen or did happen, this is probably the way it would happen. That's very similar to And when an author in, a, in either fantasy, horror, science fiction, or for that matter, even mystery, uh, achieves that, they've really done something. Yeah. And I, I, I have to admit to you that uh, I actually think today that the best writing that is being done is in those four genres. At least in English. I, I can't speak uh, really to other languages. But in English, I would say that. Well, that was part one of Charles Colomb's return to the SQV podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be forthcoming in the very near future. And in that episode, we're primarily discussing the monarchy, how it might exist in a modern society, a brief overview of its history, the distinctions between different types of monarchy, and with a special focus on Blessed Charles of Austria, about which Charles has just written a compelling and comprehensive book, which you can order from Tumblr House, of course, and I encourage you to do so. Stay tuned for that episode, and in the meantime, God bless, pray your rosary, and we'll speak to you soon.